You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 134, Ethical Decision-Making. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and to make a difference in ending human trafficking. And uh, Sandy, we are in the midst of a three-episode series with Deputy Chief Derek Marsh. And on the last episode, we talked about an ethics overview. And today we're going to get into some of the ethical decision-making. Well, I'd like to welcome um, Chief Marsh back to the show. I'm very excited. You know, he currently is serving as the Bureau of Justice Assistant Visiting Fellow in Human Trafficking, and his goal is to um, address the issue of identifying labor trafficking practices across the nation when he works with task forces. And for me, that's a particularly important um ethical dilemma because most task forces, the majority of their investigation resources go to identifying victims of sex trafficking. And the dilemma of of valuing the the and having empathy for victims who are labor trafficking victims um, is is a difficult thing to communicate to the general public. And so I'm um, especially glad that that uh, Chief Marsh is developing our human trafficking and ethics course for the online certificate. You can check that out in the show notes because students there, and this is straight from the course description, students will learn how to identify ethical dilemmas, be provided with and apply ethical decision-making models in the context of biblical ethics and Christian virtues perspectives. So let's just jump right into this, Chief, and talk about um, why we need to have a decision-making model in the first place. Uh, Great. Thanks for having me back, Dave and Sandy. And yes, so so last time we left off, we were talking about values and basically uh, applied ethics over the different other type of more philosophically focused ethics questions or pursuits. And finally, you know, the idea of ethical capacity, that we can learn to improve our ethical understanding, our ethical sensitivities through moral imagination, and also our our ethical behavior, if you will. And the fact that both individuals and groups have kind of codes of ethics, if you will, or moral codes more for an individual, and ethical codes more for groups or agencies, if you will. And... I know you were going to work on yours. That's yes, what you I, promised. I'm, okay, yeah, so. I'm, I've got it started. You got it started. So I, I was working on mine. I mean, I I remember. I mean, like the, like the core values as I was growing up. My father was uh, an ex marine, and he never really. You know, and I say that kind of facetiously because he was he should have been World War II. He was in actually in World War II, and um, he got out, and he never he may have gotten out of the core, but the core never got out of him. Yeah. So he was very uh, kind of semper fi, which I appreciated. I. It was always yes sir, no sir, yes ma'am, no ma'am. I've changed obviously as I got older, but at the time that was how I played it if I wanted to survive my childhood. And uh, and he was all about truth, honor, loyalty. You know, it, He was very firm about these values and what they meant for us as, as a family, as individuals in a family. And so 
if you think about back in your family or your childhood or whatever, you're going to find that your family really exuded a particular focus. And I, you know, again, I challenge everyone just to go out to do that, not as a, a homework assignment necessarily, but as this, to get a feeling for where you're coming from so you have a better understanding where you want to be or you want your groups to be going to. Uh, so I guess the trick at this point is really moving from those more personal issues and understanding what really is a dilemma. We keep mentioning the word over and over again, and really it's basically a, a challenge or a, a way of understanding how do we apply these moral or ethical values or systems of, of values to different situations we run across every day. And in, and in the world of ethical dilemmas, there are really two types. There's a right versus wrong dilemma, which is one of those very easy things to do. You know, if, for instance, if I need to get to the store on time and I'm going down the street and the lights turning, the light has turned red and there are people crossing the street, do I stop and yield to them crossing the street and wait for the light to turn green? Or do I just plow through and, you know, devil may care? And because I got to get to that store and I want to get there right now. And I think, I'm hoping that most people decide to <laughs> stop at the light. Yeah. <laughs> That's a pretty straightforward one. I mean, and it's basic and I'm not trying to like, you know, set the world on fire with my ethical analysis here. But the bottom line is that's a pretty basic for straightforward things, you know, thou shalt not kill, those other types of things for the most part. In most situations, they're pretty cut and dried, black and white, if you will. Whereas there are other types of dilemmas called right versus right dilemmas that are a little bit more challenging. That's where you're in a position where one, one decision can be considered just as valid and good as another decision. We talked a little bit earlier about a victim's right, about should we arrest that person right now and you know hold them accountable for any legal violations they may, may have made, or do we release them to a victim service provider and treat them as a compassionate, holistic person and then come back later and worry about the legalistic issues? Both of those approaches are correct in a sense, um, but which one are we going to go towards, which is more ethically... A sound for HT collaboration to pursue. And when we're talking about right versus right dilemmas, you really have four different types of those. And they kind of are on a continuum, if you will. They go from truth versus loyalty, which is kind of like a personal honesty versus keeping one's promises, which can be kind of complicated sometimes. Uh, you have individual versus community. So you have the interests of an individual versus the, individuals of, uh, the interests of a group which can easily conflict within about five seconds once you're in a group and you'll find that very quickly. Uh-huh. Um, you have short-term versus long-term considerations. You know, there are some decisions we make that as far as the present goes, that sounds like a really cool idea or it may work out for us in the short term, but in the long term, it could undermine what we're doing and who we are and our reputation. So we have to be careful on those levels. And like more dear, more near and dear to my heart, obviously, is the fourth is justice versus mercy. The idea of the fairness uh, versus the empathy and compassion perspective. Well, and that really raises a question because when um, when I look at these um, types from the Institute for Global Ethics, I can I can easily understand and acknowledge the truth versus loyalty issues and individual versus community and short term versus long term because those are finite um, distinct. I can distinguish between those those nouns, but this justice versus mercy, fairness versus empathy, um, that's a problem for me because I think that mercy is part of justice. So then uh, help me, give me an example of, of how I would do the right versus right with justice and mercy in, in a human trafficking dilemma. Uh, well, I, I think that... Uh well, let's, let's fall back to where we, we talked about it before. There are different, like, 
in a way, there are kind of different different ethical strategies we could use to come to an ethical conclusion, if you will, or, or solve a dilemma. So if you're looking from, there are three really that I like to focus on. There, and, and again, I'm being general and I'm not pretending to be exhaustive when it comes to the treatment of ethics or ethical strategies or decision-making processes. But there are three that like a lot of us usually go by. If we're looking at an individual level, oftentimes the golden rule, the rule of reciprocity applies. That's due unto others, correct? So if we are thinking from a fairness or an empathy, which way would you go with a victim of human trafficking? Well, how would I want to be treated? Would I want to be treated like mm-hmm. a suspect? Or would I prefer to be treated like a person to give them some, you know, a little safety and security, get some nice clothes, get some food in my belly, a little sleep, you know, understand a little bit where I'm coming from, understand where my circumstances are? Or do I want to be thrown in the hot seat and ask questions right away? And then am I in a survival context? Am I under arrest? Am I not? So from a, a golden rule perspective, which has been in existence since Confucius in 500 BC, and I don't know, obviously it's in the Bible, Aristotle mentioned it as well. Um, from on a, on a straight level like that, it's pretty straightforward. I think that we want to be treated a little bit more with compassion and, and mercy, that we want to be treated like just a cog in the illegal system, a criminal justice system. We're trying to achieve a particular goal of putting someone in jail or prosecuting them. So that's that's how I look at it from that level. But if you look at it from a bit what we call like a means or a rules-based world, where you have rules to follow, rules and laws are rules in a way, then the, the rule of law is basically you've broken the law. Mm. And you have to take, you know, you have to take that into consideration. And there's some laws to deal with victims and treating them correctly and making sure they have the rights given to them too. Marcy's Law in California is an example of that, where there are a number of ways that you're supposed to treat a victim appropriately. And so you have to balance those. Which of those come primary? Mm. Right? And so you have to like, you have to, you have to make a, an analysis. You have to have other people chiming in and making an idea. Is it right to, let's say... I'm looking for housing for this person and I don't have housing for this person, but I need them to be off the street because they're a teenager and I can't connect them with a relative because that's the situation they came from mm. and they could potentially be thrown right back into it or somebody pretends to come up who's a family member who's really maybe a part of the traffickers, you know, criminal enterprise or the trafficker themselves. Do I let them go or do I put them in detention for a few days? You know, I, I've, had, I've been in a position where we had to make the hard decisions like that and in, in fairness, there there's no happy ending to that. And if you think about, you know, is the person's complete safety and security taken care of? Sure, they're in detention, but they're also feeling they're a pr- criminal because they're in kind of a criminal facility for juveniles. So it's it's a very balanced, it's a very difficult way to come to terms. And you need other people helping you make those decisions. And And I've had victims say to me, when someone tells me you're going to be safe now, we've got you and we have a place for you, they 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 thought, oh, good. And then they found out we have a place for you for 90 days. And then what? So where's the ethics in making a promise that you're safe now? And you can't really say that in 90 days from now, they're back with no resources and and very vulnerable to being re-trafficked. Sure. And I mean, in, in the labor context too, I've talked to several task forces and not to, you know, this is all thanks to the Bureau of Justice Assistance for allowing me the opportunity to go out and visit these task forces and get these perceptions and understand these different ways of approaching labor trafficking and these issues. But there are a lot of agencies will say, well, great, you want to help our people who we feel are being at least exploited through labor, if not trafficked through labor, but their visas are tied to their employers. So once you take them away, they're automatically out of status. So number one, what are you going to do about that out of status perspective, you know, the issue that makes them te- technically deportable again? 
But on another level, where are you going to house them? Where are they going to stay? Because right now they have a housing location or somewhere. And if you don't have somewhere for them to land, then why would they go your go with you when they, you know, it's the devil you know versus the devil you don't know in a sense. So um, it's, there's frequently, and especially with these right versus right dilemmas, there's no strong right answer. You could always come from a different perspective and find a different way to make it work where it plays out. And again, the third one, we talked again about the, the golden rule. We talked kind of a means-based or rules-based kind of perspective, but also there's an ends-based or consequence-based perspective where you're looking at what is the outcome you're looking to get. And however you get there, it's okay. So if I'm looking to make someone feel safe and secure, that's my goal. Whether I have housing or not, if I can detain them, then they're safe and secure in that housing. I know that. They may not feel that way, mm-hmm. but I know that they're safe and secure in detention as long as we have certain rules within the detention that are kept away from general populace who are actual criminals versus being victims, things like that. Or is it better for us to wait and find a housing situation for them and then the question again becomes there, well, what kind of housing is going to fit? Is it a domestic violence type of housing situation? Are there trafficking-based housing or you know available beds available for that? Because most jurisdictions are having troubles with that. That's a, that's a fundamental issue with human trafficking right now, whether you're dealing with sex trafficking or labor trafficking mm-hmm. victims. So you, you gotta figure out what is your, what is, you gotta clarify for the group and not just, or your agency, what is your end goal there? Is it for the person or is it for your agency? Because for my agency, it's putting people in prison and making sure they get held accountable for what they do. And the victim service provider thing is making that person whole again, reestablishing their personal dignity. From a faith-based perspective, it might be not only bringing them back whole as an individual and restoring personal dignity, but also introducing faith into their lives mm-hmm. and having things go. And from a healthcare perspective, it's making sure they're physiologically fit and they're healthy so they can make those decisions Intelligently, so, so I mean, there's all kinds of ways you can play it, and each of these strategies alone could get you to a decision. But which one do you adopt? Is really the classic question you have to you have to look at. So, give us some models for that ethical decision making process. Um, well, there are there are many again, and this is one of those things where there are a multitude of decision making models out there for ethical decision making or EDM, as like we like to call it. And I can just take three off the top okay. and basically we can look at those and kind of narrow the field artificially, if you will, just for this particular purpose. But there, uh, a person named uh, Savara uh, uh, back in 2007 wrote a book about more about administrative issues in bureaucracies. Mm-hmm. And he was a city manager type of focus. But uh, he, he, he had something what we call an ethical triangle. And what he did is he took each of these steps, this, you, your golden rule perspective and your rules-based perspective and your consequence-based perspective, and you put them on different points of a triangle, and they, you start rationalizing which is better for that person. You try you explore each of those avenues from an ethical, using these ethical strategies, and whichever came to be closer to the center of what you were trying to do and what you're trying to achieve, then that's what you went with. So in our previous example, of our victim, where do we put that victim once we find them, or what do we do with them? Do we provide housing? Do we put them in, in detention, or wh- wh- how do we play it? Uh, I think, in my perspective, not just an agency, but from my perspective, I would say that the uh, rule, the the rules base, was really unsatisfactory to me. And, it, and I understand that there's rules you have to apply, but there every agency has their own different rules, and depending on which agency is in charge of that person at the time and who has control of them, those rules end up getting put in effect. But the uh, golden rule perspective 
wanting to do it to others that you would like to do to yourself or to your family or whatever, however you want to, however you want to visualize it. And I also think the ends-based or consequence-based perspective kind of weigh, outweigh the rules-based in this particular case. And I, I know that's kind of the current thinking in the federal government and for the task forces anyway, but I would say in Savar's ethical triangle, those two issues would weigh out. You'd say, okay, well, because two make more sense than of the three, then that's the direction you would head. Okay. For your decision. So that I would like be that, one. So I can remember three things. Exactly. You don't want to get, you know, the more complicated you get. Again, this doesn't help you if you're in the middle of a shooting situation, obviously, or, or you're, you're hitting the brakes and deciding whether you're going to, you know, how you're going to react to a situation right in front of you. This is something you can think about. You don't have to make that decision lickety split. Um, a second model that actually comes from Vanguard University, Professor Gary Tyra, is I call it the biblical model, but basically, he, he, he advocates kind of taking time to get the facts of the situation to make sure we're not reacting, but we're, you know, we're being proactive about things. We want to understand what the Bible says about the situation, if anything, to see if there's any kind of recommendations or thoughts that the Bible may have about how we would address the issue. Again, golden rule being, you know, predominant. Uh, and finally, um, we want to look at consequences too. We want to say, well, for each decision that you made, you want to make sure you're responsible to all the persons who are going to be, you know, affected by the decision or all the groups, if you will. But you also want to be responsive. And in his world and in the biblical, well, that's why I call it the biblical model, we have kind of like, you want to say it's like that moral imagination, but he, he, he more focuses on the Holy Spirit as being that moral imagination, that quiet Socratic voice, but it's actually, a, it's the Holy Spirit that's speaking to you and kind of guiding you as far as which direction would be the way to go in those particular situations. So I think that's, a nice model. I think it's it's a sound model. It's definitely biblically sound, and for faith-based organizations, I can see them using that. But it's very, you know, with our separation of church and state, if you will, on more of the professional and bureaucratic level, it's very difficult to apply that model in a day-to-day world. And if you were to apply it to where we were coming from, I'd say you're back to where you were our previous thing. Uh, you had two of those, you know, the care-based or the uh, golden rule. Mm-hmm. Was very a very strong way of you know, I would prefer that person be treated with personal dignity, get them safe and secure, make sure they're fed, they have clothing, they have shelter, and then we'll talk to them about what happened to them as opposed to accusing them of being a criminal. Uh, and so I think that would play more into this model, and that's the decision you would come up with in the end because he's also focusing on consequences. So, and finally for him, it's obviously you got to make a decision because we could talk about it all day long, yeah. but you finally got to make a decision on how things are going to ha- be handled. So um, that would be the second model that I think you know could be potentially used depending where you're at and which groups are being are using it. And finally, I again I advocate uh, for the Michael Josephson seven step path, not just because I was trained in it, because law enforcement's familiar with it, and anything that you can do, especially in California, I won't say all law enforcement across the world, but uh, they've ado- California's adopted the Josephson seven step path as far as eth- ethical decision making. And because you have that base and that understanding and that commitment from law enforcement agencies across California, you're speaking the same language, mm-hmm. which I think is really important in understanding and, you know, especially in collaborations, if you have the, if you understand the terms that you're using, you don't have to redefine them with each other every five minutes, then you're way in a better position to create a more sustainable task force. And, and, so, and you can still keep your own personal moral um, code Absolutely. And, but learning how to articulate that in a collaborative model of, of a multidisciplinary team, it's much more effective to adopt um, a common set of terms. Correct. And I, and I, and I think we talked a little the last uh, 
podcast about layering, right? Where we have our personal, our personal uh, moral codes, if you will, our personal values and beliefs and attitudes that we're coming from that we were raised with or we've got, and that we, you know, we believe in strongly or not, as we, as the case may be. We have our agency or the groups that we're belonging to, you know, whatever that may be. It could be, it could be a federal agency, it could be a, a non governmental organization. It can be a government organization, it doesn't, or a faith-based organization, healthcare, educational facil- facility or college campus, whatever. We have, we're going to adopt kind of the perspective that they have as well. And then we have on the third level, a collaborative layer mm. that, you know, if Kirsten Foote's book um, about collaborations and that came out in 2016, uh, she talks about these different layering, and I'm kind of forecasting for the next podcast. Yeah, yeah. But but the idea being that you have to appreciate all these different conversations and these different aims and goals that they're doing, and try to come up with a universal language that will transcend all of those three, to help everyone be on the same page without a lot of interpersonal or interorganizational challenges that can occur okay. along the way when you're talking about values and beliefs and ethical codes and how to perform and how to do your job. So, so one of the things I like about this idea of using model is it's, it's a system that I can practice. And so the first one had three points. The second one had four. Now you're taking me up to seven and I think I can learn seven. So take me through those seven steps. You bet. And, and, and to be, and to be fair with Savara, it's a little bit more complicated. I mean, obviously there's an analysis stage that I didn't talk about, which we did automatically. It's, it's running him through his second area would be the triangle itself and following, he, he looks at like monitoring and modifying things, decisions you make. So I want to give him full shrift. I don't right. want to short shrift him. So we'll and we'll put a link him. into his model. We'll put a link in so I don't feel like I'm not giving him full due. And, and the same with uh, Dr. Tyra. You know, yeah. I want him to feel that I misrepresented we'll him. A, we'll put a link into that one too. You bet. So with Josephson's, uh, there are seven steps. Is basically, it says stop and think. And I like that because basically instead of reacting, going, yay, you're actually going to say, okay, I want to take a step back kind of assess my situation, see what's going on. The second thing I like about what he's talking about is you want to clarify your goals. Where are you trying to go? And that reminds me back in my training as a, in, in, you know, when I was brand new recruiting a rookie, you get in a car with another officer and you're responding to a call and your adrenaline starts pumping and you're like, I'm going to get to that call. And you, you start hitting the gas pedal and your FTO, and at least my FTO, my field training officer looked at me and said, where are you going? And half the time, I wouldn't know. That was before. The, <laughs> you didn't <laughs> have I'm a going. navigator. I, I got a call. I'm, I'm rocking and rolling. I'm, I'm taking care of business. And he goes, you can't get anywhere unless you know where you're going, my friend. And I'm like, okay, well, I can disagree. I can get somewhere, but I'm definitely not going to go where I want to be. So, you know, in, in my world as a trainee, you had to know the address you were responding to and know what you're, and know the type of call you were going to to help you understand what you're getting prepared for mentally when you walk through the door or approach the situation. Here, clarifying goals is, what am I trying to accomplish? Am I trying to help the victim? Am I trying to put people in jail? Am I trying to change them over and help them introduce them to a faith community that I think is important for them? Am I trying to make them well and increase their physio- physiological and, and health and psychological health? Or am I trying to better educate them? So those types of things you have to be clear in your mind about. Uh, you also want to determine the facts again. So that's pretty straightforward. You want to know what's really happening and not try to assume. You want to make sure you develop appropriate options You know that you're going to be so... For me to say, well, I'm just going to let the girl go if I find who picked up driving isn't really an option, right? Mm-hmm. I guess it is, but it's not something that I think any most people would would allow to happen. Uh, but so you want to make sure you have options that they're realistic. You want to think about the different types of consequences that come from the decisions you're going to make, and finally, you got to make a choice. You know, mm-hmm. it's fish or cut bait, right? It's time to it's time to fish. You've cut your bait. You've done everything you can do. 
not trying to throw the line in the water, trying to make it work for yourself. And again, the final part is to monitor and modify. You want to see how the decision works out. You want to see how that person, you know, acts in the system. Obviously, in human trafficking, kind of the challenge of it is every situation is unique and every victim is unique. But you know, there are also some standards you can draw from them, some you know, promising practices. And there are many out there, you know, uh, OVCTTAC offers a website talking about promising practices with development task forces. So that's just one way you can go. But you want to monitor, monitor and modify those that decisions, what you, the decision you made and see how that's affecting the person. Did this get me where I wanted to go? Because if it didn't, maybe you want to rethink it again and go through it again. Hmm. Okay, so seven, seven steps. Stop and think. Um, clarify goals. I um, often get in the car and I haven't plugged in the address of where I'm going. And so then I, uh, I, I try to use voice activation and all that. And I finally learned if I don't put the address in first, I'm just going to have more challenges. So I, I love that's a really important one. Determine the facts, develop options, consider consequences, choose Okay, so I have this expression people have started um, teasing me about because I just say, you know, I'm done. We're going to quit pushing the peas around on the plate because we just don't want to do something. This is the hardest step. Make a choice. Decide. Make a decision for better or worse. And I'm not talking about marriage. I'm talking about you when in that whole right versus right Um you have to decide which road you're going to go down and it has consequences. But if you don't do anything, the, um, the con- there are consequences for that too. So that choice step number six is really important. And knowing that monitoring and modifying is part of the, it, I, I think I'd like to see this more as a cycle than as a linear decision-making model, because I do have a way of adapting if the consequences and the outcomes don't meet my my hopes for the situation. So, okay, um, are there any particular obstacles that we should be um, anticipating in order to successfully implement this model? Well, there are lots of different, uh, what we call rationalizations or os- obstacles to uh, our EDM, our ethical decision-making models. And on a personal level, there's a lot of rationalizations we tell ourselves that say, well, for instance, like if it's a necessary thing, then it must necessarily be ethical. And so the question becomes, is it really necessary? Mm. And how does that necessity, you know, be, is, is it really ethical along the way? Does that make it ethical because it's necessary? And again, it's you almost want to call it like the false necessity trap, right? Where you think that everything you're doing is so consequential that, you know, it, it absolutely has to be ethical. And not every decision is an ethical decision mm. you're making, or it, or it could go down, it could go definitely down a slippery slope. Uh, obviously, from in my profession, the idea that if it's legal, and it's, or it's, it's with policy, that it's okay to do, and I think it's something that not all policies are meant to cover every single situation. In fact, most well-written policies don't. They allow the individual to make those decisions, which is where your ethical understandings and your ethical decision-making really comes in. It becomes more prominent and important to be capable of doing it. The idea that it's for a good cause, you know, obviously, fighting human trafficking is, a, I would say, on the whole, a good cause. But just because you're fighting human trafficking, there are lots of different ways to do it. And again, that whole martial mentality where it's it's a, a struggle and a fight, um, you know, it really it's a law enforcement kind of way of looking at it. Um, I know we've used it from the federal level, like the war on drugs, things like that. Yeah. But it's you're not warring against drugs. It's about 
the way people behave with inappropriate materials and things like that and how they're spreading them. So you've got to be careful how that martial ethic gets you. Uh, the idea that you're doing it for them. So if, if I'm doing it for you, it's automatically okay. And it's like, well, who are you really doing it for? Is it to help you or to satisfy them? Uh, or you're saying, well, I'm going to fight fire with fire. They broke the law. I'm going to put them in jail. That's the way life goes. And so you got to be careful of that. Uh, the idea that maybe it won't hurt anybody. And I would say that every time I've said that about something, there's always somebody I've missed in the equation that it could potentially hurt. Mm. Or you know, So it's not going to hurt them to detain them for a couple of days, but maybe they've been detained for so long or had bad experiences where it would be emotionally traumatizing for them. So we're going to be sensitive to that. Um, the idea that everyone's doing something, obviously, you know, my dad used to say, well, everyone's jumping off a cliff. Are you going to jump off a cliff? I'm like, well, if I was a lemming, I guess I would. Everybody's but other than that, so that, there huh? we go. I guess everyone's parents have something along that line. Uh, and the idea that if you're not gaining personally, so you take yourself out of the equation, somehow this selfless decision, there are no selfless decisions. Again, remember, mm. how you think is how you value and how you value is how you think. So whether you're doing it from a agency perspective or a personal perspective, you are doing it from a personal perspective. You can't walk away from it. Uh, there are some things saying, you know, maybe I've got it coming or they've got it coming. You'll be super careful about that because we are not the judges in the world. Mm. We are we are just out there trying to help people do the best they can to be restore their personal dignity and come together. And finally, it's you have to understand that when your emotions are in play, maybe you can't be objective anymore. That maybe you need to step away and someone else can make the decision for you. Or, and here's the beautiful thing of being in a collaboration, you have a group decision. And you can talk to multiple people, make sure that you are taking yourself and your emotions and your biases out, at least out of the equation as much as you can um, to come to a decision without falling into the whole other world. The groups fall into like the whole group think perspective where if the majority of people say it's okay, it must be okay. That's yet another wow. fallacy on, on that another higher well, level. And this just leads so, us right into the final part of this in the third podcast on this when you um, implement this EDM, ethical decision-making model, in a collaborative. So we're looking forward to that. As we sign off, Dave is going to give us information if you have more questions. Well, thanks, Sandy. Uh, we've got so much more still to come in the third episode uh, here in our series. And in the meantime, we'd love to hear the questions that have come up from you in listening to Sandy's conversation with Deputy Chief Marsh today, uh, please email us if you do have a question, gcwj at vanguard.edu, or you can reach us by phone, 714-966-6360. And a bunch of the conversation today has reminded me of just the importance of us all staying connected. And if you aren't already uh, connected to the Global Center for Women and Justice. Two ways to do that. If you use Facebook, just search for the Global Center for Women and Justice on Facebook. You can like the page and you'll get updates. You can also go on our website at uh, vanguard.edu slash gcwj and subscribe to the newsletter and you'll stay up to speed on what's happening with the center, center and uh, what Sandy's doing. So we'll see you in uh, two weeks for the next episode. Take care.